Well, hello and welcome to this panel discussion on the topic of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. My name is Paul Mills and I'll be chairing this session. And joining me will, will be three other individuals who have been closely following this pandemic since its inception. And fortunately for us, they have significant expertise in several areas of high relevance to each of us. And those areas that we'll be discussing include current medical treatment options for SARS-CoV-2 infection and also COVID-19 disease. We will be discussing the importance of innate immunity and also the potential societal epidemiologic consequences of mass vaccinations. An important topic too we'll be discussing is that of medical ethics and gaining a better understanding too of how the pandemic has influenced the perceptions of society at large on not only governmental agencies, but, but also science itself. Before introducing the panelists, I'd like to introduce myself and tell you why I'm chairing this panel. I'm a professor of public health at the University of California, San Diego. I have expertise in areas of psychoneuroimmunology and behavioral medicine and also integrated medicine, uh, having published approximately 400 scientific papers in these areas. I was invited to chair this panel by the Westrike Foundation and also the Alliance for Natural Health International. And frankly, when I received the invitation, I was pleased to do so because like many of you, I have followed closely this pandemic. I followed it through the various tragedies, uh, the, the sadness, but also the triumphs that we've seen again and again. But I've also been acutely aware of the uh, many machinations, uh, the inconsistencies of messages and information that we've obtained from our different governmental agencies, including the CDC, and also from the mainstream media. I've uh, really done my best at times to find information that wasn't being presented on the mainstream media, uh, seeking it out where I could find it, and also finding information that I had been posted at one point, but then had been taken down and censored. Now this censorship, frankly, has been very puzzling to me because as a scientist, I keep a very open mind. In fact, if you speak to any scientist, that's a foundation of good science, an open mind. We seek to find as much relevant scientific information as well as opinion on what the topic at hand is. We then do our best to do a synthesis of that information, and then from there, move forward to next steps. Those next steps might be, well, it's time for a new set of experiments in the laboratory. Or if it's highly relevant and the synthesis is far enough along, relevant to medical treatment, then it's time to embark on dissemination and implementation of that new treatment as it evolves over time. This, of course, is very relevant to the topic of the pandemic and we'll be discussing this. So these are the reasons I chose to uh, chair this panel. I'm really looking forward to it. I have a lot to learn and, uh, and I'll now begin by introducing our panelists. So I'd like to have uh, Dr. Peter McCullough introduce himself first. And then from there, Dr. Geert will introduce himself. And then from there, Dr. Robert Reverk. So uh, Dr. McCullough, please. Well, thank you, Dr. Mills, and, th and uh, let me extend my welcome to the fellow panelists and to the 
uh, viewers of this important program. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a, a board certified internist and cardiologist. I'm a trained epidemiologist uh, in academic practice in Dallas, Texas. So I see patients every week in my office and I split my time between patient care as well as academic endeavors. And uh, I'm a member of the Association of American Physician and Surgeons. That's the banner behind me. Uh, AAPS has been a leading supporter. Uh, in fact, they were the organization that published the first home treatment guide for COVID-19. And over the last two years, I've completely dedicated my clinical practice as well as my academic endeavors to face the virus, SARS-CoV-2. I have 51 papers now in the peer-reviewed literature on COVID-19, including the two seminal papers that teaching doctors how to treat the illness early to prevent hospitalization and death. I have over 650 papers in the National Library of Medicine uh, cited by that indexing uh, organization and 1,000 overall publications. So like Dr. Mills, I believe we're in the upper echelon of all uh, published uh, physicians and scientists right now in the United States. And I've uh, taken uh, an analytic view uh, towards COVID-19, trying to give my guidance last year through a series of contributions. I was a regular contributor to the Hill, trying to guide our lawmakers on pandemic response. This year, I've started a uh, radio program for the world, America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report. And many of you have recognized me. I'm a frequent contributor on Fox News, um, uh, Real America, uh, OAN, Newsmax, and most major news channels in the United States, because as a clinician, as well as a scientist and epidemiologist, I have been fortunate to be well positioned in understanding clinically what the next twist and turns will be with the pandemic and pandemic response. And most recently, uh, trying to help the world interpret the emerging data on vaccine safety and efficacy. So thanks for having me so much on the program. Wonderful, thank you, Dr. McCullough. Dr. Vandenbosch. Hello everyone, I'm Pierre uh, Vandenbosch and uh, my background uh, is in fact veterinary uh, medicine, but uh, shortly after my uh, specialization in veterinary medicine and uh, in fact initially the first years uh, of my professional uh, career were in uh, equine medicine and surgery, but then uh, early on I uh, shifted to molecular biology and uh, virology, did a PhD in virology and uh, stayed for uh, a number of years in uh, academia where I uh, primarily concentrated on virology, also environmental virology, was teaching uh, zoonosis uh, at the university in Germany, Stuttgart. And uh, I then uh, went on and uh, joined the uh, vaccine uh, industry where uh, I worked in a number of companies, uh, primarily, first of all, in uh, late development, where I was very close to uh, the product, very close to uh, vaccine uh, development for several viral diseases. Uh, and I then primarily switched to uh, R&D. So uh, in the research department, I was mainly in charge of uh, adjuvants and uh, alternative vaccine delivery. So it's in fact a special field, a special branch of uh, vaccinology. And uh, that's also where I learned uh, immunology. Uh, from there, I uh, joined the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and also uh, organizations like Gavi uh, <clears throat> set up also my own uh, company. Uh, which was uh, specialized, in fact, in uh, vaccine design. I've been uh, passionate and fascinated by uh, vaccine design. So the, the designing really 
completely new approaches to um, teaching the uh, immune system on how to tackle a number of diseases uh, that we have no solutions for right, uh, right now. About 10 years ago, I realized that uh, we are turning a little bit around in circles with our vaccines. We have a number of uh, very good, very interesting vaccines. Uh, but then uh, as it comes to chronic uh, diseases, for example, as it comes to uh, therapeutic diseases or uh, immune-mediated diseases, we are really stuck. So uh, I felt the need uh, really to um, <clears throat> find a completely different approach to, uh, to, to vaccine design. And uh, I have been uh, in the last few years concentrating on vaccines that uh, target NK cells, so cells that are, um, can, can tackle a broad uh, number of different pathogens and that are not uh, restricted by uh, genetic haplotypes. So when, um, yeah, well, after, after I had worked with these companies, uh, I set up my own uh, consultancy company and that's what I've been doing over the last two, three years. And also when COVID uh, came along, I uh, felt immediately involved because uh, although I don't have uh, that number of papers uh, like you guys, I can draw from, from several different fields. I can draw from immunology, I can draw from vaccinology, from infectious diseases, from uh, zoonosis, from uh, also evolutionary biology. And I think that has uh, become very, very uh, important uh, during this crisis because literally, the, uh, a pandemic is already very, very complex in its own right. It is a very complex interplay between uh, the uh, the host, of course, and uh, and the virus. And then this pandemic is even more complex because there has been a lot of human intervention in terms of infection prevention measures, in terms of mass vaccination, etc. So it seemed to be very, very important to put all the different pieces of the puzzle uh, together. And uh, I personally think that one of the uh, most puzzling elements in this pandemic uh, that has been um, not very well understood is the immunology, especially also the involvement of the uh, innate immune system has been largely ignored and uh, neglected. And uh, that is why where I'm primarily uh, trying also to educate people and to contribute uh, in uh, a way that uh, we can finally uh, come to some consensus and find uh, solutions uh, to the deep crisis we are currently in. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you very much. Already, as we're doing our introductions, I'm, I'm getting so many ideas for questions beyond the list that we had already populated. So Dr. Bever, please uh, tell us about yourself. Thank you very much, Paul. I'm a sustainability scientist. I've been working for the last 40 years in that field, um, something of a polymath. Um, I'm an ecologist by original training, um, and I have had a, a career that's really mixed everything from academia through to consultancy and campaigning on everything from environmental through to chemical issues and health issues. So my academic background um, after my original training in ecology was in uh, looking at sustainable agriculture, looking at, if you like, complexity in agroecosystems and how to um, create stability there was at Imperial College London, where I did a master's, a PhD, and then seven years postdoc. And uh, interestingly, I, I was at that point, I started to develop a very strong interest in what we were producing in healthy agricultural systems, which was interestingly healthy foods. 
and looking at the differences in production systems between um, conventional systems and the increasing globalization of the food supply, I was really very astounded that, that um, my medical colleagues were not interested in nutrition, nor were they interested in some of the extremely uh, interesting plant compounds that were present in some of the plants that we were studying. Um, and that really woke me up to the fact that, that um, we need to have people who are involved both in producing healthy foods and healthcare. And at, I was then in 2002 um, offered a permanent job. And instead of that, I set up the nonprofit Alliance for Natural Health International. And for the last 20 years, what we've been doing is really um, looking at how you can apply sustainability to healthcare. Um, very much working at how we can connect more with nature and understand how we can work in harmony with nature to create health rather than working against nature. So for me, when, when the whole um, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic developed, it was quite extraordinary to see so quickly that um, the primary desire was to have a very unilateral strategy that was everything revolved around this spike protein antigen. And because it was being produced very, very quickly, because it was um, being produced with public money, because um, governments were indemnifying the manufacturers, we very quickly went very public on the fact that transparency was all important. And of course, we never got transparency. Um, and it's been a, a remarkable journey um, to see the changes in society and uh, to see people becoming ever more disconnected from nature, really believing that something that, um, you know, Pfizer or Moderna, AstraZeneca, J&J can produce, can do something more than the human immune system can do alongside nature. Um, and yet, in many regards, we're seeing plenty of evidence that there are signals and markers all around us that are telling us what is happening now is in many respects akin to a slow motion train smash. And it's as if people are asleep, not, not seeing it. So um, really important part of the process for us in ANH is, is how we can help people to become re-empowered. Um, essentially, we've seen this transition away from what was going to be patient-centered, personalized healthcare to now a kind of form of institutionalized, um, top-down public health, um, in which governments are working hand-in-hand -hand with corporations, with big tech, big pharma, big media, to provide a narrative, all dissent is shut out. That is a really disturbing situation. So. It's really how we can help educate people, how we can transition and help this movable middle, the people who understand that there's something wrong, but they can't put a finger on it. And um, they don't feel safe by, you know, following, for example, um, people who've been labeled as outright conspiracy theorists. Um, there's a huge amount of commentators who are not getting airtime. Um, and this is one thing we're, we're all doing. We're also doing it with the World Council for Health, which is the new umbrella organization of many different associations, group doctors and scientists who are coming together. Um, and we've got to fix this. So thank you, Paul. Yeah, thank you for all that. And I look forward to us unpacking a lot of what you said 
and expanding on it as relevant to all the different domains we will be covering, including medical therapies. I was very interested in your comments about the food chain and lifestyle medicine, which hasn't gotten much attention during uh, this pandemic. There were several uh, mentions, each of you mentioned the word immunity uh, during your introductory remarks. So I'd like to begin with some discussion and further understanding of the value of the role of innate immunity in this entire pandemic for those naturally who had COVID-19 and recovered from it, uh, those with and, out, with and without the vaccination. So let's say, uh, Garrett, can you begin our conversation in this area? Thank you. Yeah, sure. I don't know exactly <clears throat> where to begin, but it seems logical to me that we would begin at the very start of the pandemic, where we basically found out that the vast majority of people in good health, not, not only children, I would say basically everyone in, in good health, uh, was largely protected uh, from the disease. And so uh, that this, despite the fact that the population was, of course, immunologically naive, because this was a new virus. And uh, it spread pretty fast in the sense that within a few weeks, a few months, uh, the, the virus uh, uh, was already detected in several different uh, continents. So one naively wonders why this virus could spread and why the vast majority of people were, uh, were simply protected. I mean, being immunologically naive, it's difficult to find any other answers than to say, well, this is probably uh, a kind of innate immune protection. And um, the, uh, we, we, there is little even as vaccinologists, and, and we, should, we should not forget that to a large extent, this field has now been dominated by the vaccinologists, uh, by the vaccine industry. And uh, I've been part of them, uh, and uh, I'm of course still a vaccinologist, but I must admit that if there is one field that is largely neglected in the field of vaccinology, it's innate immunity. And that is because when you start vaccinating somebody, you start with the acquired immunity, you induce antibodies, and that is already, uh, or, or of course also T cells, this is part already of the uh, acquired immune system. So we skip this step of innate immunity and we immediately come or induce our second line of immune defense, right? The first line of immune defense is of course the uh, innate immune system. And, um, so interestingly enough, this uh, SARS-CoV-2 is not a virus that is typically uh, a childhood disease, right? Because, I mean, especially children were almost not affected at all. Of course, you have always the exceptions where uh, uh, even children have some underlying disease of genetic deficiencies. But, uh, and on the other hand, so what we know as well, and this is a little bit back uh, or uh, related to what uh, Rob was already saying in his introduction, there are a number of publications that clearly uh, correlate good health, health status with uh, good innate immunity. And uh, it has also been, uh, I would say at this stage, very well documented. It's just that these papers aren't read and I, I'm not going to bore you, but it, it, is, it is very interesting that in a number of these uh, publications on innate immunity, it's literally said that uh, 
it is really uh, pretty contradictive with the current paradigm and that this is a field that exists and has, has been explored since 20 years, but has not really been um, uh, considered and given enough, uh, enough uh, importance. So uh, it's certainly large, uh, a field that uh, we have not been considering. We know that, especially in children, innate antibodies uh, are, are very, very important and protect them from a number of diseases. These innate antibodies are, uh, have a large spectrum. They are polyreactive, uh, can recognize all kinds of different variants. And uh, we have simply uh, we have simply skipped that that step. It's only when the virus breaks through the innate immunity that then you need to go to the second line of immune defense, and that is where we come in, of course, with the acquired immunity, where of course a number of people got the disease and then uh, build it uh, the um, well the neutralizing uh, the neutralizing antibodies. So uh, the question uh, right now is, well, if we vaccinate everybody, uh, first of all, is this going to have an impact on innate immunity? So this is to say, if people who are in good health, in good shape, even children, and that can rely on good innate immunity, should we substitute this innate immunity now by acquired immunity, by antibodies? Is this going to be better? Uh, and there comes in, of course, the whole discussion also of the immunoscape. That is one thing. The second thing, and I know uh, Peter McCurry also likes to discuss this, is, well, is it better to have your vaccinal antibodies or the uh, uh, naturally acquired antibodies? Or in other words, even people who got the disease and got their naturally acquired antibodies, does it make sense to still vaccinate these people? Both of us and many think that this is not only just not making sense, but it could even be harmful. So uh, at this point, I would maybe like to pass on to, uh, to, to Peter to express his opinions on uh, the, the vaccinal immunity compared to uh, naturally acquired uh, immunity, just to open a little bit the debate. Great, and if okay? I can add, uh, Peter, before you begin, during your introductory comments, you said you, you've been discussing a lot lately the twists and turns, those were your words of how this has all been evolving. And I'd like to understand within that twist and turns, how are you recognizing or is your medical therapies recognizing the role of innate immunity as well? Thank you. You know, clinically doctors in my circle have been very impressed uh, with the recovery that happens after COVID-19 and the subsequent immunity, which I think is best characterized as being robust, means it seems to cover all the uh, current variants that have been experienced in the world that it's complete, meaning that it's really full coverage across the spectrum of antibodies. We now know there are 27 or more uh, antigenic proteins with the virus. We know the vaccines only code against one protein, but the natural infection, 27. And then the robust T cell immunity, all the studies that have looked at the basic mechanisms of T cell immunity show with a natural infection, there is really a robust T cell response uh, both T helper and T presenter cells, natural killer cells. In fact, there's a diagnostic test that's FDA cleared. It's called the T detect test that can actually test for minor chromosomal rearrangements in T cells that code for cell surface receptors that recognize SARS-CoV-2. So clinically now we have an array of antibodies we can order. We can order IgG, IgM uh, against the spike protein, against nucleocapsid, we have the T-detect test. 
So we have a lot of sophistication uh, to evaluate natural immunity. But my points are that a good case that's well-documented, the characteristic signs and symptoms of COVID-19 with a concordant positive PCR test, preferably at a low cycle threshold, less than 28 cycles, or a positive antigen test from a high quality laboratory antigen manufacturer, like the, um, uh, let's say the Quidel Sophia test as an example. Th th these are uh, perfectly fine to establish a case of SARS-CoV-2. And I can tell you, if it was possible to get COVID-19 uh, over and over again, we would have seen hundreds of millions of cases and we wouldn't have missed it. COVID-19 would have put susceptible people in the hospital over and over again on a mechanical ventilator over and over again. Fortunately, we have not seen that. All we have seen is, I think, some confused, confusing papers dealing with false positive tests uh, uh, now and again. So for instance, we know with the original CDC methodology for the PCR test that was adopted as all the laboratory derived assays, for instance, in the United States, I know that for sure, because my system did, that that original test could not distinguish between influenza and, and uh, SARS-CoV-2. So someone could have had influenza easily in uh, early 2020 and been misdiagnosed as COVID-19 and then actually really have COVID-19 a year later. We knew that probably happened. And also it's been my clinical experience managing so many patients with COVID-19 that it's possible to intermittently test positive on PCR tests that are uh, done uh, afterwards really in an ill-advised manner and actually be intermittently positive for months afterwards. I had one person in my circles be, uh, would test positive 17 times intermittently. So it's, it, it, he didn't have 17 cases of COVID-19. He had one original case and that's it. So we now have 122 studies supporting natural immunity. It is such a strong case. Uh, the CDC is uh, uh, tracking vaccine failures. And as of mid-October, the CDC had over 41,000 fully immunized vaccine failures of Americans who ended up dying or becoming hospitalized in the United Kingdom is tracking similarly as well as Israel. So it's clear that the vaccines fail in large numbers. The CDC, for example, does not have a single case that is a representative of the failure of a natural immunity. All the ones that exist in the literature, again, I've looked at them carefully. I think they're just misinterpretations mis, uh, uh, of a false positive test. Thankfully, no one gets serious disease twice. You can take that to the bank. It basically, uh, we've seen protection against the Delta variant. And we know SARS-CoV-2, the mutations have been largely in the spike protein uh, and some in some other uh, epitopes, but by and large, the mutations haven't, haven't been enough for the virus to change phylogeny and have it become SARS-CoV-3 as an example. The cross immunity from SARS-CoV-1 to SARS-CoV-2 is very strong. It's about 90% homologous and we have supportive data. So natural immunity is so important that Representative Diana Harshberger from Tennessee has proposed national legislation to recognize natural immunity. The CDC has had demand letters in for months from physician groups demanding recognition of natural immunity because that's the only way we can get out of the pandemic. If, if we pretend as if we're always susceptible, that means everybody has to wear masks. Uh, people in nursing homes have to go in lockdown. Do you know, sadly, that we have seniors in nursing homes, they've survived COVID-19. And every time there's another subsequent case, they're actually put in solitary confinement in their rooms. There's someone in my family circle who's been basically 
in prison for six months after COVID-19. It's completely wrong. We're actually testing uh, people who have COVID recovered asymptomatically before they get on airplanes across borders. None of that's needed. Uh, the FDA has not cleared any of these tests for asymptomatic testing. Uh, the World Health Organization says don't do it as, a, as a, uh, according to their June 25th guidance. And so naturally immune can be completely free of masks, of asymptomatic testing. Uh, they can be free of vaccines. Uh, there are three studies showing that the vaccines only cause harm in the naturally immune and recovered. The vaccines offer no opportunity for benefit and cause harm. So they should be uh, just like the FDA agreed in the registrational trials, naturally immune should be strictly excluded from receiving COVID-19 vaccines. But getting natural immunity, whether it's from a first infection or even a vaccine failure and then becoming immune, uh, that really ought to be the centerpiece for us moving out of the pandemic. And I'll say one final thing, Jennifer Block, medical reporter, British Medical Journal, mid-September, had estimated in that paper in a table that based on CDC and US census estimates, we had already had 120 million Americans have had COVID-19 and that's before the Delta outbreak. And the Delta outbreak involved a large number of younger individuals. And some believe the estimates are now 200 million Americans now are fully immune. At the CDC uh, meetings for childhood vaccination, there was agreement among the CDC and FDA and panelists that 40% of children uh, through May had already had COVID-19. And now after the Delta outbreak, it's my estimate, 80% of children in the United States have already had the illness. That's a large group of people who should be completely off the table for any of these interventions, masks, testing, lockdown, uh, vaccination, et cetera. Thank you so much, Peter. That is an extremely powerful message and a message that's very different than what most of us hear through the, the common uh, media and messaging. And I think it's so incredibly valuable. And for me, it raises a question, and it's something you also mentioned, Geert, that it's well, well recognized the value, the importance of innate immunity, but it hasn't been at the forefront of the conversation. It's hardly been in the conversation at all, really. And uh, Robert, you mentioned that a lot of your work has to do with lifestyle medicine, including nutrition. And there's this link between the, our natural immunity and our lifestyle and lack of comorbidities, et cetera. Why hasn't this been such a central part of the conversation and what can we do to improve it? And of course, I know, uh, Rob, your, your alliance is endeavoring to do that for us. So could you please yes. address that? Look, uh, absolutely. I think some of it is because the science hasn't been well understood. If you look at, for example, the emerging evidence about the importance of epigenetics, for example, the nature of an individual's environment to essentially reprogram, particularly the innate immune system, that's pretty important. And it's, it's, it's one of the overall challenges that we see if we look at where the burden of disease tends to lie, it lies with more deprived people. Um, but we saw very early on in the pandemic in, in Europe, in Italy, when we started seeing the data looking at um, serum vitamin D levels in populations in Bergamo, for example, those older people that were really heavily hit, their vitamin D levels, I mean, they may be in Europe, but they haven't been sitting in the sun a lot. They've been sitting in care homes and hospitals and their vitamin D levels were on the floor. And um, so that, that would be an intervention that could have a, a profound effect. Um, obviously people's diets, because the 
immune system is so heavy on resources, people need resources to be able to function. And I know the work that we did um, in, in, uh, on Ebola in Sierra Leone um, several years back, it was extraordinary when we started administering liquid nutrition to severely ill Ebola patients. A lot of the times these people were dying from essentially nutrient starvation, um, dehydration. They couldn't eat the World Food Program food um, and nutrition needed to be de delivered so that the immune system could actually have resources on which to function. And another really interesting aspect about epigenetics is it's not just the food and it's the lifestyle, it's the effects of chronic stress. So there's, there's very clear evidence now to suggest that the sustained stress, human beings are not set up for sustained chronic stress. And look back over the last couple of years, it's pretty extraordinary what so many people have had to deal with. And while at one hand, you know, governments saying this is the delivery system for our way out of it. We're now, you know, approaching a year into these programs. No one's been released. I mean, no, no one's had additional freedom. Lots and lots of people are now looking at the possibility of losing their livelihoods. And that also imprints epigenetically on the innate system. So the real danger is if we start to continue to disrupt the, the thing that's great about young people's immune systems, they come in with a fantastic innate immunity and we start seeing that being disrupted. And then we look at the impacts of stress and poor diets. Um, you know, in many parts of the world, we're, we're being told to get used to the fact that there are gonna be food shortages or there might not be a Christmas. Um, certainly here in the UK, we already see a lot of supermarket shelves that are pretty empty. So these are all critical parts. These are medicines, if you like. And until we start looking at the, the bigger picture of what's going on, um, it's this sort of mono focus towards this, this solution that um, slowly, you know, we're seeing very clear evidence now that um, unvaccinated populations, the, the UK um, HSA data um, now over several weeks keeps showing us that the... Um, unvaccinated populations are doing better than the vaccinated. We're seeing many people who've been double jabbed who are getting severe COVID disease. So we've got to really understand what is happening from an epidemiology point of view, from an immunological point of view. And it really, I think to anyone that was thinking about this rationally, it's time for a rethink. And the extraordinary thing is there doesn't seem to be a desire to do a rethink. Um, and, you know, with, with the uh, World Council for Health that we're also working with that has a lot of doctors, scientists coming together from all over the world, um, it really looks like it's time for grassroots pressure to, to make changes so that people can start to feel a bit more empowered to make decisions that make sense for themselves. Thank you, Rob. I very much appreciate that. I mentioned in my introduction, I've spent a lot of time in the field of behavioral medicine more recently integrated medicine. And, and really, that's, that's the entire role of, of those two disciplines is enhancement of lifestyle, appreciation really of the totality of the person from the psyche all the way down to exercise and diet and so forth to help care for our own health and well-being. So I have a question uh, for any of you who would like to address it. And well, actually, I'll start with you, Geert, because you mentioned that you were active uh, in vaccine design. 
and development. You've spent a lot of time working with the Gates Foundation and other groups. The rollout of the vaccines that we've seen globally uh, over, what, almost two years now, is this what you would have expected to see? Is this what you would have done given your deep training and background in vaccines? Well, no, that's not what I, that, that is why I, I was so surprised that in fact, the, uh, the vaccine industry where I learned my job did something that I thought they had been teaching me to never do, and that is to vaccinate in the midst of a pandemic. So I've been vaccinating people while they are exposed to the virus is, is of course not a good idea. So in other words, if somebody would ask me to set up an experiment where I would give the virus a maximum of chance to adapt to the population's immunity, then I, that is probably the experiment I would do. So I remember when I uh, was working in the lab many years ago, and you, you had a viral strain that you wanted to adapt to some more difficult conditions, then of course you would take that virus and you would of course inoculate it on a cell culture. And let's say instead of incubating at 37 degrees, you wanted to have um, a strain, for example, that would be more thermoresistant or that would grow at another temperature, you would start and adapting this virus at 38 degrees, for example. And then you would passage, 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 till the virus that has adapted or that has been selected to be able to replicate at a temperature would become the predominant virus in your culture. And that is exactly what we are doing with the mass vaccination, of course. We are generating an overall immune pressure in the population. And then you passage, of course, the virus from one uh, person to the other. So the, the general rule, and I thought that is what I learned in vaccine industry, is when you are using a vaccine that cannot, that cannot block the transmission, that cannot induce ster sterile immuni sterilizing immunity, then you better make sure that the person is vaccinated already and has his full-fledged immunity before you encounter the virus. That is what we do if we go, go to, you know, uh, some, some uh, countries where there are uh, prevalent diseases that we are not protected against and we get ourselves vaccinated. Well, we make sure that we get fully vaccinated before we travel. Or if somebody tells you, well, uh, you need a hepatitis B vaccine to work in this or this hospital, you make sure that you get your full-fledged vaccination before you start working there, before you get basically exposed to, uh, to the virus. Uh, I'm always saying this is like uh, going to the battlefield while you're still loading your arm, right? While you're still loading your gun. You can already be attacked by, by the enemy, and the enemy obviously has a competitive advantage in that situation. Now, we have to remember that on top, this was also well known, that when we started this mass vaccination, rolling out these mass vaccination campaigns, we had already strains that were more infectious. 
there, we knew that strains were already circulating that the spike protein of which did not match the spike protein that's in the vaccine. So it's not like we started with vaccines that perfectly matched the circulating strains. No, we knew that there were already more infectious strains circulating, alpha, beta, gamma. And so this was on top, on top, uh, I would say, an advantage for the virus. The virus was already different. And then we are vaccinating people. We vaccinate them. They need time to mount these antibodies. Some of these vaccines needed two doses. After one dose, of course, we did not quarantine people. People got out there, got exposed to the virus while they were still mounting browsers. They still had not full-fledged immunity. So to me, it's, it seemed like this would inevitably, if you do this really at the population level, if you do this at large scale, uh, this would not have a very positive outcome. It is completely different, of course, from just vaccinating one target population, for example, only the elderly, the elderly for example, or only the vulnerable people. Um, so no, the uh, answer to your question is, I, uh, I was perplexed. I, I was completely, completely surprised. And I reacted immediately because I was 200% convinced that this was not something uh, to experiment with. Um, and uh, most of our vaccines, as everybody knows very well, are always directed at certain target populations, adolescents, children, elderly, etc. We, uh, we never do mass uh, vaccination. We basically have no single example of doing mass vaccination with uh, non-live vaccines, uh, even the subunit vaccines or the mRNA vaccines, the uh, nucleic acid-based vaccines, uh, none of them are live vaccines. We never do this. We never vaccinate with non-live vaccines in, in, in the midst of a pandemic. There is no example. There is no precedent uh, whatsoever. Uh, as we know, uh, some of the pandemics are uh, like uh, also, of course, the smallpox. Uh, we used live, uh, live uh, vaccines uh, also for polio. And for polio, basically, we came in with these vaccines uh, after the pandemic was uh, almost over, right? So. Uh, um, so yeah, it was uh, for me completely, completely against um, you know the, the the conventional school of thoughts, and, uh, yeah, and, and I was very surprised. Yeah, completely. Yeah, against yeah. Your training. You know, you mentioned uh, the immune pressure that that this course of action has taken, and please, anybody, jump in uh, addressing this. But what have been the consequences? And I'm particularly interested in what will be the long term consequences of this immune pressure as it's uh, created a different environment for the virus to you know, evolve and adapt and change. So, so there's that side of it. And then of course, I also wanna get into just physiological consequences. Peter, you've seen myocarditis, uh, pericarditis. Uh, I also want to cover these topics as well. But, but let's talk about the long, these long-term consequences. So, uh, Paul, I think it's very important to mention, and I've messaged Dr. G uh, uh, Vandenbosch multiple times on this. He's been prescient in anticipating these important developments in the pandemic. I give him enormous credit for anticipating what exactly has happened. So we learned early in the summer, clinically, that fully vaccinated individuals were acquiring the Delta variant and passing it to one another. 
Farron Holt from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Venkrana Krishnan from the Mayo Clinic, both published their observations that the Delta variant had achieved some antigenic escape from the mm. antibodies that were raised uh, with the Pfizer vaccine and some extent Moderna vaccine. So uh, they anticipated that vaccine efficacy would drop even uh, at the peak of uh, immune protection from these vaccines. And then there was basically uh, a, a torrent of papers. It started with Chow and colleagues from Oxford in a unit uh, in Ho Chi Minh City, a tropical medicine unit that documented that fully vaccinated individuals with the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, were passing the Delta variant to one another. Uh, Hetamaki from Finland reported healthcare workers getting the Delta variant and passing it to patients and having it become fatal. And then in the United States, we had two good studies, one from Rymerisma from the uh, Wisconsin Department of Public Health, and then another one from Acharyan, University of California, Davis, demonstrating high viral loads in the nose and mouth of both the vaccinated and unvaccinated with the Delta variant, uh, those individuals with incipient COVID-19, they had come forward for testing and the cycle thresholds uh, were about 22 to 24. So the inverse of that is viral load. So what we learned is exactly what Dr. Vandebosch predicted was that uh, in fact, when we are vaccinating right into a pandemic, it gave an opportunity for the emergence of a variant that could actually do very well in the non-sterilizing environment of those who are vaccinated. So now we have a situation uh, in the United Kingdom in the 43rd UK uh, surveillance report, weeks 39 to 43, 81.8% of all United Kingdom residents who are dying of COVID-19 are fully vaccinated. Similar mm. data are have been reported now for several months in Israel. The United States will catch up with that. Our, our trends are heading right in that direction. So I have, uh, have said that vaccines, when I testified in the US Senate uh, in November of 2020, I told Americans, I thought vaccines did play a role. They, they were one of four pillars uh, for us to address COVID-19. The first one was reducing the spread, second one, early treatment, third one, hospital treatment, and fourth one, vaccination. But the vaccination approach, in my view, uh, should have been targeted and should have been targeted in some way where we could keep a, a limit on uh, any emerging safety signals. Uh, the highest risk population that made sense was seniors, um, certainly those who were still susceptible, not those that recovered. And we had credible evidence that nursing home workers were actually spreading it to nursing home residents. That was the only kind of worker to resident spread that we had documented in the literature. So I had estimated maybe, maybe uh, yeah, two and a half to five, maybe 10 million people at the most in the United States uh, should have been vaccinated in the first uh, foray into vaccines. But what happened was just a, an unqualified disaster. Uh, we basically uh, tried to snowplow the entire population with the vaccines. We had a mortality signal emerge as soon as uh, January 22nd, with only 27 million Americans vaccinated, we already had excess mortality. If we would have had a data safety monitoring board in place, uh, the, the, it would have shut down the program, I'm convinced, in February. Very similar to that is what we saw of the swine flu pandemic in 1976. But instead, there was a blind eye towards safety and also a blind eye towards failing efficacy. And we've run all the way up now to a situation where in our VAERS system, we have over 18,000 individuals who have died. We know from two separate analyses from uh, Rose and McLaughlin that 50% uh, of these deaths occur within 48 hours. 
80% occur within a week, uh, 86% of the time, there's no other cause. And we know it's biologically plausible because all the vaccines available in the United States, as well as the UK as we speak, and uh, uh, the EU, uh, actually use genetic technology to uh, create a mosaic of cells in the human body, uh, somatic cells and immune cells that produce the spike protein. They actually uh, harness the body's uh, cellular machinery uh, to produce the spike protein for an uncontrolled period of time and for an uncontrolled amount. And so you can imagine among variation in individuals, the tolerance to handle uh, a potentially lethal uh, round of production of the spike protein, the spike protein is proven to be pathogenic. It damages organs, damages endothelial cells, causes blood clotting. It's, it alone and by itself has been shown to damage uh, key cells in the heart and cause myocarditis and the FDA in the United States agrees. It also causes neurologic injury. It triggers other immune phenomenon uh, that uh, uh, cause Guillain-Barre syndrome, other neurologic syndromes. And our regulatory agencies agree and actually have warnings on it. So this has basically evolved now into a public health disaster. The first public health disaster was SARS-CoV-2, the respiratory infection. And the second disaster now is uh, the, the, what really the, the fallout and the consequences of an ill-advised mass vaccination program. Thank you. Again, powerful messaging and extremely troubling. For me personally, it brings up this topic uh, of informed consent. Even when this vaccination program began, it was already known there would be this laundry list of adverse events, some less serious, some extremely serious, even potentially mortality. And we've seen that bear out over the many, many months. However, the message to the public remains the same, that the vaccines are safe and effective. I don't think either of those are, the, certainly the first one's not true. And so what happened to inform consent and what can we do for next steps to fill in the public. And uh, Rob, I know you'd like to speak about that, but anybody jump in. Yeah, no, if I can, uh, I mean, I think nothing happened with informed consent. It didn't happen. So I think, I mean, there's a there's a couple of extremely important elements to, to recognize about properly informed consent is that you need information. So the, the, the very notion that, that um, at the time that people started making informed consent, all they could think of was numbers like 94%, 95% efficacy that came out of press releases, press releases from you know, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna, et cetera, with these um, you know, telephone number type VE levels that, that made them feel safe. You know, in the end, people wanted to feel safe. Um, they had no real understanding. I mean, my, my, what really surprised me early on was that, um, you know, if you look at other public health measures, take, for example, fluoridation of water supplies, there tends to be a sort of regional experimental program where they'll say, okay, there'll be certain areas that will be test areas and we'll compare um, people who, who drink fluoridated water against people who drink unfluoridated water and let's see where we're at. We'll test early treatments. We'll, we'll look at all these things. What the, the notion of rushing full scale into mass vaccination, as Geert has said, that there is no precedent for doing this. And the bottom line is that the, you know, we were involved in, in um, a campaign to, to um, block the changes in UK medicinal law 
at the time all of this was happening. We we had um, we've now gone through freedom of information. The the campaign we launched that created responses to that from the public were many fold greater than all other petitions and consultations that have been done with government before. So um, it, it suggested that people were really concerned. But again, what we saw very early on is this complete um, shelving of democracy. So it didn't seem to matter what the public felt. This, under these emergency conditions, governments and industry could pretty much do whatever they wanted. Now, from an informed consent point of view, there are a number of places where an individual might want to go for information. And the most obvious one is to the vaccinator. But of course, as, as we pinpointed in our consultation response, they were needing to vaccinate so many people. They were pulling people out of the military and out of other jobs who had no information at all about what was going on. So there was no possibility of doing that. Occasionally, you'd find that someone would be given the, um, you know, the pill, the product information leaflet that is a compulsory requirement. And again, bearing in mind, these are emergency use authorizations. They're not properly registered products. So at that time, there was very little in the way of post-marketing surveillance data finding themselves into this, but there were still um, a number of significant adverse reactions. So, um, and where people got those pills, very often they were given them after they were vaccinated. So interesting when you look at the sort of the legalities, in most countries, it's a similar situation that um, for a vaccinated to deliver or for a, any medical intervention to be delivered without properly informed consent actually constitutes battery so um, or assault on the person. So that has happened many million times over already and people seem to think it's okay. And I think this is this sort of strange culture shock that's happened over the last couple of years. By sustaining emergency, by, by um, and of course this emergency will be maintained if you carry on using PCR tests that will, you know, the problem will never disappear because you know we're generating more of a problem with mass vaccination and we're using PCR that whenever prevalence goes down, we know from Bayes' theorem, the levels will go up. So you can have this perpetual system that, that freezes the population from being able to act normally. And, and one of the most devastating parts of that is the collateral damage that is beginning now that we're two years in, almost two years in, that's beginning to happen at all sorts of levels of society. And this is not just health impacts. This is effects on economies. Um, this is effects on livelihoods, on education, on, you could go as far as saying, you know, really impacts on the future of humanity itself. Well, indeed, uh, we, we mentioned earlier, just uh, much of our food supply has been extremely limited, uh, at least in cycles over the uh, months of this. Based on what you were just saying in our earlier discussion about the medical side, you know, I have many family members and friends who wonder, should I take the booster or not? Some have gotten it, didn't notice anything. Some have gotten it. And then really with the booster is when they begin to notice significant adverse effects they hadn't so much had with the initial vaccination. So I'd like to discuss the, the booster topic in the sense of what's it lining up? What is the first shot lined up for people that then makes them more vulnerable to an extreme reaction later 
and more broadly, what is your philosophy on, on the use of boosters through this pandemic? Uh, who should respond to that? Well, please, let's, <laughs> let's have a conversation. So anybody jump in, whoever starts, if somebody wants to jump in on them, just please. Yeah. Uh, this to me, it's a, it's a vitally important question because as we said, many people have already received the vaccination and they're at now a decision point. What's the next step? Do I, don't I, based on their own personal experience, based on perhaps things they've been reading, perhaps based on experiences of friends and family. And they're conflicted, frankly. Part of it is what we were just saying about the informed consent. There's no information for them to readily go to, to make a sound decision. So they're seeking. So please, let's address this. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Paul, I, I think this is, this is uh, maybe the most important message about the pandemic, that is that you will, and I will come to the booster, of course, you will never, ever, never, ever control any pandemic if you cannot control the transmission and the infection. So right now, the standard is protection. Well, it was protection. Uh, initially, it was about herd immunity. Then it was already mitigated. It was uh, diminishing infectious pressure, then it was uh, diminishing uh, disease or protection against disease. Now it's protection against severe disease. Okay, this might be important criteria with regard to, you know, uh, health management and not overloading our, our systems. But in terms of controlling a pandemic, uh, it's, not, it's not a valuable, uh, a valuable benchmark. And so that means that as long as you give the virus a possibility to replicate and you continue increasing that pressure because frankly speaking, that is what the boosters in injections are going to do. So these people, uh, when they will get the boost and remember the boost is uh, still with the, you know, with the, the conventional vaccine, it's not an update. Uh, uh, it's not with the S protein of the, uh, of the Delta variant. So what you're going to do is you're going just to increase the uh, antibody levels again. And we know that these antibodies are not capable of, um, of in fact, controlling uh, virus replication. So another important thing, because it's very, very complex, and I want to keep it simple, but in fact, the interactions are very, very complex. One also has to bear in mind that these people get the third shot because their antibody titers are declining. That is something which was generally found, right? But when their antibodies are declining, that also means that the innate antibodies that they still have and that can provide sterilizing immunity, that they are now going to be less suppressed. So that means the specific antibodies are declining, the innate immunity comes a little bit back and can diminish, can diminish the infectivity, the infectious pressure. So now you are in a situation where your, your uh, booster effect really induces a suboptimal effect. If it would really increase the antibody uh, level at a very high titer, it could have a certain effect over a longer time. But that effect, that protective effect is now to some extent also diminished. 
And the virus is just capable of replicating borderline because the innate immunity kicks in again and can take away part of the effectivity. So that is an optimal situation to further drive really the immune escape. And what I'm always saying is that, and that is logical, we, we always look at these things you know, at an individual level. But we have, we have to understand that if we cannot protect the population, we cannot protect any individual. Mm -hmm. And if we just look at the individual, this is not going to solve the problem. So in other words, you may have momentarily, you may have an effect of the boost, a positive effect. And that's what we have, you know, people think will, is going to happen in Israel right now where they got, they've gotten already the third boost. But on the other hand, people don't realize because it's not their individual case that by doing this again massively, we further drive the immune escape and that this virus will now come in a more infectious, even more infectious uh, form that will then, of course, uh, also for the individual, escape even to that boosted immunity. So at the end of the day, what we do at the population level has for every single individual an impact. And that is why if we only look at snapshots and we look only in the short term, eh, for example, you have seen an evaluation in Israel two weeks after the boost, two weeks after the boost, guys, this is a success and uh, we diminished the, even the effectivity, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that doesn't count. The pandemic is per definition an evolutionary event. It evolves mm -hmm. and the more it evolves and the more, and that is not just, that is not me saying this, these are the molecular epidemiologists who are following where this, 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 this virus is moving and where all this, mutations are converging to. And that is to an end station that is common. And the more we evolve towards that end station that is higher infectiousness, and I hope it will not be, but I think it could be resistance, then this is of course going to have in the lower term or even in the midterm, a detrimental impact for every single element of that population. So if we just look at the individual level and just look at snapshots and short term, we can, we can cry victory, but we have to look at this uh, along the lines of what a pandemic really is, which is an evolutionary phenomenon. And then the boosters doing this massively uh, and, and people will follow this, can follow this because for me, the strength is you, you do the reasoning, the host uh, virus interaction, you study the immunology and you make a prediction. And when you're really very convinced that you have not made no mistakes in your reasoning and that get then confirmed by the data, I mean, this is very, very compelling. And what I expect, for example, in the exemplary country, Israel, is that after a short period of uh, a progressive incline, the virus will have overcome again the effect of the boost and we will, we will go up again, like maybe, maybe worse than before, but I don't want to, to be the drama queen here. But uh, anyway, that is the effect, um, uh, the, the effect of the boost. The first dose, the same. You have not full-fledged immunity at that, at that point. Mm -hmm. And you have antibodies that are not fully functional. So that means they cannot fully 
neutralize the virus. But they can, of course, already bind to the virus. And you know what is in the literature about antibodies that bind to the virus, but have no functionality in the sense that they cannot neutralize the virus. Um, well, this is a topic on its own right, but it seems like this situation is prone even to enhancing the yeah. disease. ID. And there I would like yes. to refer to, uh, to, to, to Peter because he, he is one of the guys who is observing these patients after their first shot and, 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 and see what's happening, for example. Yeah, okay. excellent. That, that is a question I've had too. So yes, Peter, you want to address this in your medical the, work? The UF, US FDA and the advisory panel reviewed the data on boosters September 17th. And the first vote by the panelists was 16 to 2 against boosters. Mm -hmm. And the rationale was in part that uh, there were some data suggesting that boosters weren't needed. Uh, as pointed out by Dr. Vandenbosch, that some of these analyses uh, on vaccine uh, failures were done really just a few months after being fully immunized. So th the vaccines did hold up to some degree. Uh, with the alpha, the beta, and the gamma variants, uh, just, uh, you know, at least a small portion of gamma. There were papers by, recently published, by the way, by Self and 1040 and others, suggesting the vaccines were doing something, at least for a few months, against the legacy variants. Uh, but one of the, uh, you know, key pieces of information is those legacy variants are exactly that. They're legacy. They're in the past. They're gone. We have 99% delta right now, since it's thriving among the vaccinated, whether they're fully immunized or receive boosters. And we have data from Israel showing failure of the boosters uh, in some papers. There's other papers suggesting that maybe the boosters are having a, a short-term effect. Uh, but I'm greatly concerned about the biology of what the vaccines do. We know that the vaccines cause production of the spike protein. The spike protein, the 1200 amino acid protein that confers the pathogenicity of SARS-CoV-2 to keep giving the human body a run of spike protein in different mosaics of tissues. Uh, we know the lipid nanoparticles now go to the brain, the heart, uh, the adrenal glands, the ovaries, other sensitive organs to keep having rounds of production of spike protein and exposing the body to these dangers uh, is extremely concerning. And uh, we now had a really a stunning finding by Bruce Patterson presented in preprint uh, in July 29th, and then at the Rome International Summit, and I've had a chance to interview Dr. Patterson, he'll be coming up on America Out Loud Talk Radio. He's a brilliant scientist who studied at the University of Michigan and Northwestern University. He was a, a molecular biologist and researcher at Stanford and at Northwestern. He's a top shelf investigator. He clearly showed that in people sick enough with respiratory SARS-CoV-2 infection, that the S1 spike protein was recoverable from CD16 positive human monocytes up to 15 months after the infection. Dr. Patterson, uh, in a personal conversation, uh, uh, basically told me he's extremely confident that after the vaccine, that the spike protein will persist in the human body of some individuals clearly for more than a year. So you can imagine no wonder people feel bad with long COVID syndrome. They have brain fog, they have muscle weaknesses, other uh, neurologic phenomenon. Uh, people also similarly feel bad after the vaccines, even if they haven't had one of the explosive non-fatal or fatal consequences, they feel bad after COVID-19 vaccination, some of them do. And now the concern is accumulation of spike protein. It, it, we, it, the, if the vaccine injections occur more frequently than a year, and it looks like we're looking at 
every six months, uh, there is a medical certainty now that spike protein will accumulate not only within immune cells, but probably in the interstitial spaces, maybe in neurologic tissue, uh, muscle, cardiac tissue, for uh, basically a prolonged residence inciting inflammation, itself causing damage. Uh, we now have a paper from China showing that the spike protein uh, interacts with two cancer genes, one the P53 gene and the other one being the BRCA gene. Uh, to have a foreign protein in the body for a prolonged period of time interacting with cancer genes, uh, having a negative impact on uh, uh, inflammatory illnesses and then neurologic and cardiac systems, I think is extremely worrisome. I was on Australian TV with an interview and I was shocked to learn that Australia is planning to have 14 doses per person. That is one dose every six months for seven years. That type of prolonged exposure to a spike protein in my medical judgment is extraordinarily risky for the development of chronic disease as a manifestation of vaccine. Right now, all the vaccine where risk we're seeing is short term. Most of it's within the first 30 days, death, yep. uh, and then these immediate organ injury syndromes. But if we start giving boosters, now we give uh, the real possibility of the vaccines causing chronic disease in a large population. Given everything you just said, including what's going on in Australia, where is the possible rationale for lining up some of these injections for people over, over time? I, I think the rationale simply comes from the fact that they are coping with diminishing um, you know, persistence of, of effectiveness. We're seeing waning effects um, and they are using it as a treatment without necessarily admitting it to the public. And I think this is why many of us are struggling with continuing the narrative of referring to these products as, as vaccines because they are essentially running um, against, yet we haven't seen any direct comparative trials against a whole range of more conventional treatments. Um, and, and that really is the pitiful side of it. I, I mean, from, from a, again, a consent point of view, it is extraordinary when we saw the Japanese biodistribution study that showed to all the regulators that had given emergency use authorization clear evidence that the nanoparticles moved a long distance from the deltoid muscle. The, the, the view that was given to the public is that the whole immunological reaction would occur within the deltoid. And as if by magic, you would then um, you know, have sufficient neutralizing antibodies to deal with the problem. So they knew from the outset, and even when you look at the viral vector um, candidates, um, again, from 2007, we knew that the use of the viral vectors, the very viral vectors that were immediately put into production could be associated with thromboembolic events. So you, you start to put the picture together and you realize, you know, given that the public had also been very um, much behind funding all of this, um, and again, fascinatingly from the sort of the communication, the point that Peter makes about the cytotoxicity of the spike protein, um, I'm staggered, you know, an institute like Salk Institute, who, who did some of the groundbreaking work on specifically the, the cytotoxicity of the spike protein alone, um, how that has been jumped on by fact checkers, by governments, from people generally who are not in a great position to know one way or another. But um, as soon as you, you recognize that there is 
independent toxicity. And in fact, that toxicity may directly be associated with the vascular events that we start to see in later stage. You know, suddenly, as Paracelsus told us more than 450 years ago, the dose makes the poison. So, you know, this uh, idea of, of, of just starting to, to increase dosage just because the treatment isn't working anymore, when you then don't look medically at all the other options. And, and obviously, through the work we've been doing with the World Council for Health, the number of doctors who are now being struck off because they have used I ivermectin or recommended ivermectin, um, unless you follow the, the, the mainstream strategy. So this, this notion of being able to allow clinicians to work to the best of their abilities, I mean, that from a, a bioethics point of view is a, is a very sad state to, to be in. And the fact that, uh, you know, patient choice doesn't count for much either. So people, I mean, we, we've just been dealing with um, a colleague who, who didn't do anything about his COVID-19, um, found himself in a ward um, where, you know, there were four people in the ward, three of them were fully vaccinated, they had COVID-19 as bad as he did. But the level of care that he received because he happened to be unvaccinated was much worse than the others. And of course, we managed to get um, ivermectin and, you know, high dose vitamin D and other things into him. 48 hours later, he walked out of that hospital. One of the other patients died. And of mm -hmm. course, again, you know, the very fact that they weren't interested to understand what had happened within that person's body. Um, you know, we've seen in oncology this happening for years when someone has a phenomenal remission. What has happened to the scientists that must reside in every doctor? Um, and that's why it's so wonderful to see someone like Peter um, taking the risks that he does, doing the best that he can. The same applies to all the doctors we work with, the World Council for Health, people taking huge risks. Um, some of the South African doctors we're working with now for continuing to speak out. Next week, Kurt and I are involved with the African Health Summit in order to get a different message across to most sub-Saharan African, uh, African nations, which is, guys, we know that you're not very excited about COVID because you've got major problems with TB, malaria, HIV, AIDS, and these other issues, but um, don't buy into the idea that you need a vaccine because it could be the worst thing, both from their own individual health point of view in terms of disturbing um, innate immunity in particular, but but also it may be important from an evolutionary perspective to ensure that um, a very large proportion of people in sub-Saharan Africa, I think the uh, the vaccine coverage, the COVID vaccine coverage rate is, is less than 5% in sub-Saharan Africa at the moment. Um, the longer it stays that way, perhaps the better it is for all of us. That's a very interesting observation. I, I wouldn't have thought about that. And, and uh, Rob, I appreciate you sharing uh, your personal story uh, about a friend or colleague who was in a ward. I personally know, and of course I've read through the literature, there have been a lot of adverse events, uh, different types. Peter, you mentioned some of these uh, here too. People often ask for advice, gosh, what, what can I do? I'm, I'm having this symptom, that symptom. And uh, you know, I, I don't know actually. So any of you who could speak to that, what kind of general advice can we give people who have had an adverse effect? Uh, if you want to speak different categories, that would make sense to me. Do this if you've had that, do this if you've had this one. 
So, so please chime in on that. Yeah, Paul, since I'm a cardiologist, I'll pick up on the well-recognized complication of myocarditis, a non-fatal syndrome that the US FDA and the other regulatory authorities worldwide recognizes with the messenger RNA vaccines. And in a paper by Avolio and colleagues, uh, they demonstrated that the spike protein independently damages pericytes, which are the cells that support the capillary network and the cardiomyocytes within the heart. The spike protein is expressed there. It incites inflammation and the syndrome uh, occurs uh, in younger individuals. It peaks around age 12 to 17, but it tails off all the way up to age 50. And in a paper by Rose and myself published in Current uh, Problems in Cardiology, we demonstrate that epidemiologic relationship. Uh, it's it far greater in men than women, boys greater than girls. I mean, substantially more. So there must be some relationship to androgens or to the that kind of post-pubital burst in uh, uh, androgens or uh, gonadotropins. And very uh, importantly, uh, it's a very serious consequence. I was on national TV in June when the story broke and the CDC and FDA had a universe of 600 cases. They analyzed 200 cases and both those agencies and statements said that the syndrome was mild and it was rare. And I strongly objected to Americans on national TV. I said, number one, it can't be mild because 90% of the uh, patients are hospitalized. You know, mild conditions don't require hospitalizations. And I said, it can't be rare because very few children have been vaccinated at that time. And from a safety data perspective, it's really irresponsible to say something is rare. We should always be cautious and conservative and, and indicate the term we use in data safety monitoring is the tip of the iceberg. So what they saw in June was the tip of the iceberg and I was right on both accounts. Now we have over 11,000 cases of myopericarditis certified by the CDC in the vaccine adverse event reporting system and a paper published at the end of August by Tracy Hogue at the University of California at Davis shows, and with these thousands of cases now, 86% of the patients are still hospitalized with chest pain, signs and symptoms of heart failure, very high cardiac troponin levels of blood test indicating cardiac injury, about a quarter have incipient heart failure with uh, abnormal echocardiography. I can tell you clinically, I manage these patients. I have to put them on drugs to prevent the developed heart failure. These are young uh, kids basically be treating with heart failure drugs we'd use as an adult. They can have no physical activity. We have to get resolution of the syndrome, multiple lab tests and imaging. Uh, we know from a paper published in 2018 in circulation research uh, from other forms of myocarditis, generally, it's a pretty good series, about 13% of those individuals actually have permanent cardiac damage. Now, we hope that this large number of people now coming forward with vaccine-induced myocarditis, we hope that there is complete re recovery of cardiac function. Uh, but sadly, there are already deaths. Choi and colleagues from South Korea just reported a death in a 22-year-old Korean uh, a man died shortly after the COVID-19 vaccine. He had signs and symptoms of myocarditis. The autopsy indeed showed myocarditis in critical parts of the heart. There was dramatic inflammation and destruction of cardiac tissue, what's called contraction band necrosis. There can't be a more clear signal here that the vaccines, if the mosaic of cells where the lipid nanoparticles taken up substantially includes the heart, which it can in some, and it must be stochastic in terms of how this happens, there must be some interaction with androgen or androgen receptors. And then the boys far more than girls develop this syndrome. 
which at least in now some cases can be fatal, and then in other cases may lead to permanent cardiac injury. I think parents and young people ought to look at the myocarditis warnings and look at it very clearly. The, the, our agencies are putting these warnings on there for a reason, and the only way to avoid this complication is to defer on the vaccine. That's fascinating. Pierre Corey um, from Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance is, is started administering now anti-androgen drugs um, specifically for that reason. Uh, any outcomes on that yet as far as uh, efficacy say? Well, they, yes, they're, they're, they're getting great results. What, what, what they've started to see, uh, and this is one of the difficulties about drawing data from a few months back is that it's a it's a moving you know playing field all the time the goalposts are shifting and so um what they were getting is extremely good results with with ivermectin but when they started to see worse outcomes until they started increasing the doses so they're now all the time that the protocols are having to change and that would suggest that somehow the the host pathogen interaction continues to evolve. And I think, um, you know, Hib was really one of the first people to, to really remind us that we've got to look at what this, you know, vaccination pressure is actually doing to this interaction, together with the fact that, that we're dealing with a new pathogen altogether. Um, and, and we're now using, you know, a, a spike protein antigen that's um, based on a computer model from the original um, Wuhan virus that, that has very little relationship to what we're dealing with. Um, and it's extraordinary that these clinicians um, now are, are being more and more sidelined by the system, uh, which really we, we should see discourse in science. We should see the sharing of these protocols, the sharing of results, not the exclusion of, of people who are having phenomenal results. Indeed, yes. Uh, that's what I mentioned in my introduction. It's been so puzzling to me as a scientist to watch the trajectory and how certain information has been handled. Information that I personally view it as extremely important and valuable. Well, that's very sad news about uh, the cardiology story you've been sharing, Peter, but good news that there are approaches to help, help with the treatment and maybe offset it even being incurred. Hit. One of the questions we get asked a lot um, from our members um, in ANH is that there seems to be a, a large group of people who made a decision early on to be vaccinated. Um, they thought it was the greatest thing that they could do for themselves, for their grandmothers, for their families, um, for the planet. Um, they now have more information than they had before and they don't want to continue. And we know a lot of people have had a single jab who haven't had the second one. Um, we also know people who have had two jabs who now are ambivalent about having a booster. Can you just talk about what you think from the perspective of their immune system? Um, many of them are asking, you know, will we recover? If we haven't experienced any notable, obvious adverse event, and of course some of them have, um, some of those were sometimes short-lived. Others are still dealing with, with these problems. But for someone who hasn't experienced um, a significant adverse event, what's happening to their immune system? Will they become equivalent to, say, someone that is vaccine naive? Well, we, we first have to distinguish between people who have been uh, thoroughly primed, and that means they got their two doses uh, of the vaccine, 
and and those who got only a, a single shot and uh, most likely uh, didn't get really primed. So people have to realize uh, priming means that your immune system has memory, that it will memorize uh, when it sees the pathogen or the antigen. Uh, that is not necessarily uh, the case when you got only one single dose. So again, um, let me start out with the, the, the unpleasant finding to then move to something maybe more positive. The unpleasant finding in this pandemic is that there is a snowball effect. So what I mean is that you have to realize when you got vaccinated, so you got primed, uh, normally your antibodies decline after a while. So there is no problem. But unfortunately, we are dealing now with a pandemic of a highly infectious variant, the Delta variant. That means that the likelihood that you get naturally boosted by this virus has now become very, very high. It's almost impossible to avoid for like six weeks in a row, unless you lock yourself in, into a bunker or something, to not get exposed to the virus. So you have to remember when you are really primed, as soon as your immune system sees a little bit of the virus, a little bit, your antibodies will go up again dramatically. So uh, that has always been, and again, my, my, my statement and, and my viewpoint is that what is good for the population is good for every single individual. What would be good in the first place is that these antibodies could decline. So, they can only decline when we dramatically, when we dramatically diminish the infectious pressure in the population. Yeah, a situation back to where we were at the beginning of the pandemic, where we had the Wuhan strain that was way less infectious than the type of variants we are dealing, uh, we are dealing with uh, right now. So, um, however, however, what, so that is something we cannot avoid unless, unless we, we dramatically, massively, we do mass chemoprophylaxis campa campaigns, mass antiviral chemoprophylaxis campaigns in countries that have a high vaccination rate. That means where the Delta variant has a huge competitive advantage and has become dominant. So that is the only way we can get the infectious pressure down in the population and get the likelihood that people get reboosted over and over again in a natural way by the naturally circulating variant, that this likelihood becomes remote. So that there is not a continuous, uh, let's say, boost of their antibodies, because the thing we, we barely touched upon is that these antibodies, each time that uh, they get elevated titers, they will also, they will also get, again suppress your, your innate immune system. And uh, there is a lot of things that we have to say about this. I will probably not expand on this one. There is a talk that I have Monday at the World Health Council where I will expand on this uh, to, to, to explain what, uh, what, what really the problem is. What I think, my humble opinion, is that it's not going to get easy to get rid of this program. Remember, an immunization is like an installing a program on your computer that you cannot erase. That is very different from a drug. So the only thing that one could do 
is to come up with an immune intervention that very early on, when the virus gets into the cell, that is capable of recognizing that that cell is infected and kills the cell before even it can generate progeny and can be exposed to the immune system because that is the point where your antibodies will get boosted. They don't get boosted at the moment where the virus comes into the cell. It, first of all, the, the, the cell needs to, um, to serve as a kind of um, uh, reservoir for the virus where it can replicate and then it gets released from the cells. It gets into the circulation. That's where the B cells or the memory B cells, etc., can recognize uh, the virus and that the uh, antibodies will, of course, get boosted again. So if you can intervene before this happens, so that means at an early stage of infection with a vaccine that recognizes the infected cell and kills it, then there is no problem whatsoever. That would definitely solve the problem. That would definitely neutralize all the vaccinations that people have received, but we are not yet there, unfortunately. So um, I'm not going to, to expand for, for hours on this. Rob, there is not that many things we can do. Dramatically diminish the infectious pressure so that there is little boosting, because every boost is again, suppressing your innate immune system is again, uh, putting a lot of pressure, even more than before on the virus. Uh, the other thing which works at an individual level is to immediately kill the virus when it, when it infects the cell in a way that uh, the virus, the infected cell is eliminated. This would have a beneficial impact, not only for the individual, but of course, since this would induce sterilizing immunity, it would dramatically suppress uh, the, the, the infectious pressure in the population, which would, of course, be beneficial for all of us because it's this infectious pressure that is continuously, that is having this snowball effect where you get more immune pressure. When you get more immune pressure, the virus continues to escape and add further and further again. So it's a, yeah. Uh no, that, that, that's fascinating. I, I think what's also interesting is the fact that, that many of the clinicians who are dealing with people who have persistent, what, what we now call post-jab syndrome, are benefiting from approaches that, that are really about improving detoxification within the body or providing antihistamines. So, so because we know mast cell activation is part of one of the mechanisms that may be going on as well. Um, we, we, we see also the, the liver being placed under, under a lot of stress. So, um, you know, for example, people are taking um, NAC that, that um, boosts the, the level of uh, glutathione in the body um, can be important. And that, that, that is not typical of anything you would use for a, a normal vaccine, but you would use it for any toxin. So again, it, it, it does suggest that some of the symptoms that people who do suffer ongoing symptoms post jab are actually linked to toxicity. Um, so um, from a natural point of view, yes, NAC, um, quercetin, for example, from the uh, to, to deal with the histamine side uh, are, are definitely very, very helpful. Um, herbalists are using um, milk thistle to support the liver um, as well. So yeah, inter interesting processes. Peter, have you got um, um, some views on people who've been jabbed 
you know, how some of them you're obviously dealing with with a proportion of people who are also suffering adverse reactions. Any clinical pearls that you can offer? Yeah, the first thing I'd mention is uh, the diagnosis to try to diagnose a vaccine injury syndrome. Uh, it's it's challenging. So we can just start with headache and neurologic symptoms. This is common. It's difficult to know when to get a CT scan or MRI. Uh, the US FDA and other regulatory agencies have warnings on uh, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson for thromboses in the brain. And so when to pull the trigger and do imaging is a, a big deal. Uh, I mentioned myocarditis in the children, when to get an EKG and cardiac troponin. My advice to clinicians is be cautious, be conservative, and get the tests because we don't want to miss these potentially fatal diagnoses. Uh, and, uh, and they're going to come up as more and more people come forward each round of vaccination. Um, uh, the neurologic syndromes, uh, many of them, the, the nonspecific ones, once we've ruled out uh, thromboses, uh, end up uh, getting treated with some forms of drugs that have shown some benefit in clinical trials of acute COVID-19, including fluvoxamine, fluvoxamine for the um, neurologic syndromes, for uh, these cardiac and pleural pericardial symptoms, colchicine, prednisone, uh, use of ivermectin, which is interesting because ivermectin is the only drug that has an anti-spike protein property to it. So it believes that people are calling it spike protein disease in these various organs. And then as mentioned, because of the extensive tissue damage uh, and the catabolic strain this puts on the body, the use of nutraceuticals and supplements uh, in the United States, one that's popular again, without an evidence base though is N-acetylcysteine, uh, an antioxidant that regenerates glutathione. Uh, I think it's really all hands on deck. I'm calling for vaccine injury centers. It's so similar to the long COVID syndrome, both manifested by prolonged uh, a presence of the spike protein in the human body, probably the vaccine injured ought to be right in there with the long COVID patient and get into randomized trials of various approaches. It's probably going to be a multi-drug approach. And my experience so far is that these are long lasting. It takes months of treatment. I was recently alarmed in my practice with a woman who I had for 10 years. She's perfectly managed. She's about my age. She took Johnson & Johnson in March here we are in September, six months later, she develops a thrombosis of the entire left arm with no blood outflow of the left arm. It turned blue. Uh, she had to have emergency treatment with thrombolytics. Now she has to have a vascular surgery. Her arm is ruined. I did fill out the, the VAERS report and I did check off the box permanently disabled. Uh, sadly, in the United States now, we have 28,000 people in the US VAERS system who are now checked off as being permanently disabled as a result of taking one of the COVID-19 vaccines. Well, and I'm pleased that we're covering this part as we're winding down our session, meaning what type of uh, therapies there are, drug therapies and otherwise, uh, for those who have had adverse effects from the vaccines. And we mentioned a few. I'll also add one that uh, in the, one of the JAMA series, it was approximately two weeks ago, there have been scientists, clinicians who have been working with different um, uh, types of Chinese herbal combinations and have been having success in symptomatology. I don't know so much of its symptomatology just from uh, getting COVID per se or uh, vaccine injury, but I assume there would be some overlap there. So there are quite a few things that we as the public, as individuals can do on our own uh, to take care of ourselves uh, if we've had adverse effects, but also just to take care of ourselves, to strengthen our own innate immunity and uh, we'll post some of that uh, on the website once we post this video.
What else, uh, gentlemen? This has been really outstanding, uh, particular closing comments. Uh, yeah, I, 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 wanted to put, I wanted to put, put in a plug for both prophylactic and act, active treatment of oral and nasal virucidal therapy. This is important. This has come on strong now in 2021. There are seven clinical studies, one large randomized trial, uh, over 2,000 patients involved. And it, it basically uses uh, one of several different solutions that have a virucidal activity, it kills the virus, either dilute povidone iodine or dilute hydrogen peroxide with some glucose iodine, even dilute sodium hypochlorite has an anti-infective approach, both mouthwash and gargle and then nasal spray or nasal nebulization. This is important. It looks like preventively, the uh, effect size that we're seeing is about 75% preventive after exposure in a congregate setting. So I'm telling all my patients uh, when they're out of the house, going in uh, to church or the congregate settings, when they come home to go ahead and do oral and nasal virucidal therapy with one of these solutions. And there are, this is in the Tooth for Health uh, treatment guide, as well as online videos. Um, and, and that uh, those who have routinely go outside basically do it twice a day. The randomized trial by Chowdhury and colleagues randomized 606 individuals, 303 to dilute povidone iodine, uh, nose and mouth versus uh, matching saline and showed a 75% abortive effect in patients who have early COVID-19, they tested positive, they're in that early ramp up of symptoms. And it basically markedly dropped uh, the evolution of the COVID-19 syndrome, markedly dropped the low rates of hospitalization and death. These were motivated people. They ramped it up to every four hours. And the mechanism is that it's dropping the viral load to some degree. It's not eliminating the virus, but it's dropping the viral load. And probably this inoculum effect of kicking off the syndrome is related to severity. And so this is something that people could do at home. They don't need a doctor having hydrogen peroxide or povidone iodine and having this approach at home. And then I think probably Rob or others will make a comment about nutraceuticals and supplements that can also provide a base, but I'm very high now on the oral nasal uh, approach. People have been focusing on hand sanitizer. It's not a hand infection. It's an infection of the nose and mouth. And I can tell you, I had it personally. I had it personally in 2020. I didn't know about this because the trials weren't in and it literally baked in my nose and mouth for three to four days. And I wish I would have been doing something because I could have reduced the severity of my illness and maybe avoided pulmonary involvement. I learned this, by the way, from anti-infective dentist, Paul Gossett in Chicago. He commented that dentists have been doing this the entire time and they deal with cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr virus, uh, gingivitis in the mouth. So they're used to using viral cytotherapy. So they've done it themselves. And he commented that dentists have been in the mouths of people throughout the pandemic. There's been no dental outbreaks. I thought it was a brilliant observation. Look, absolutely. And that, that's in all of our protocols in the World Council for Health Early Treatment Guide as well. Um, yes, you can use Lugol's iodine. You can even use um, a Himalayan salt pipe and just put a couple of drops of Lugol's iodine. It's very portable. Um, you don't need any technology and you can carry it with you wherever you're going. Um, but yes, you know, I think we, we, it's a fascinating stage in the sense that the the early treatments now are so widely available to those who want to look for them. But of course, to those who still choose to listen to the mainstream news, they still believe the vaccine is, is, is the key solution. Um, I, th I think in many respects, the most 
complicated problem we're dealing with is the political, economic, social structures that are in place and how they have in turn created a kind of stagnancy in in human psychology so there's a we literally have moved into this sort of psychotic state in which people we, we all have a a safety need and a belonging need and they still are aligned with um, a system that has come up with an approach that does not seem to be in the public interest and that's that's what's driven me to have an interest in in people like the psychologist Irvin Staub that has um, for longer than anyone else on this planet for over 60 years as a as a um, a victim of the of the Holocaust and he was actually saved before he was taken off to to any of the camps by a bystander so he's he's written extensively about the psychology of, of all genocide events um, and he refers to what is called the bystander event the, the, uh, sorry the bystander effect um, where people literally just stand by and they will watch this slow motion train smash in front of them feeling disempowered um, I think Stephen Porges has has um, with his polyvagal theory has some of the background explanation to suggest that we, when people are in sustained fear for a long period of time, they literally go into a kind of shutdown mode. So there's a lot of people who are in shutdown. There's also a lot of people who are becoming fatigued by hearing about this. It's, it's you know, 21 months since the airwaves have been full of it. And while at one hand, they don't seem to have the attention to, to look at other things, um, they also know that their survival is very hooked up. Their future, their children's future, their grandchildren's future is very hooked up in terms of how we take this. And um, again, from a sort of evolutionary point of view, I, I do think we are living through what is now a huge moment in human evolutionary history. We are at a sort of Waddington canalization event. Okay, yes. Peter, have you to have go to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. I'll let you finish up, you guys. Thank you very much, Peter. No problem. Cheers, Peter. That's perfect. Thank you. I think we're at a kind of momentous moment in human evolution. Um, looking at the father of epigenetics, Waddington talked about the canalization, how a marble would roll down a, a slope. And as we see epigenetic marks imprinting deeper and deeper into the genome, we actually, not just individually, but as a society, get further and further locked into these valleys. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is a critical time. We can see a movement developing that, um, that is saying enough is enough. And in fact, there is an enough <laughs> movement and we'll give you the link to the enough movement that the West yeah. Rye Foundation is involved with and we're involved with, we're all involved with it because we do need to kind of rethink where we're going. And some of the typical signals that we've had over and over again, um, myocarditis, pericarditis is just one of many. We had the VIT autoimmune signal very early on for AstraZeneca vaccines. And it's as if, nothing changes this steamroller that's going ahead. And as a result, this is, you know, why we've come together with people like Dr. Tess Laurie, who, who was, you know, a major consultant to the World Health Organization and has now 
recognize that actually we can no longer expect that governments are going to change their minds. Um, it, it's a dead end course. So we have to work by communicating to the people. And really, this is um, what this conversation is also all about. Yeah, so that's what we're um, doing. The becoming empowered is really at the heart of it and um, starting to take some sovereignty back and making our own decisions is a big part of how we take back some control for our future. Indeed. And, and, and with that in mind, I so appreciate all the self-help uh, therapies people can do that we've already reviewed so far. Here, uh, any final comment? Well, I mean, on a positive note, there is another yes. uh, therapy that is uh, a little bit along the lines of what Peter was saying. But remember, I mean, it's always between the virus and the host. So the virucidal treatments locally are very effective, but there is something else you can do. You can, you can locally stimulate also your innate immune system. And that is something I remember back 20 years ago when I was still, or, or even longer, when I was still to some extent working as a veterinary surgeon. There was a product on the market, and I, I think it still exists, but it's another trade name. But back in those days, it was called a Viper Moon, and it is, in fact, an inactivated parapox virus, an inactivated parapox virus that was very, very popular, extremely efficient, uh, you know, used in, um, in, uh, in animal health uh, because there was, of course, a problem of overuse of antibiotics. So more and more the veterinary field and, and literally the key, key publications on innate immunity, you will find them uh, you know, in the veterinary field because of the, of the need to reduce the use of antibiotics. And basically this inactivated parapos virus is nothing else than a mixture of, uh, well, we call them PAMPs, eh? pathogen associated molecular patterns that interact with TLRs on the, uh, on the surface of your cell and that dramatically stimulate innate immunity. So this was typically taken, not just by the animals, but even by the vets and the farmers who were supposed to administer this, just to gargle this. And it would protect you against influenza and a number of these respiratory viruses. It was very efficient, very efficient. So we should always think about both uh, being involved. So with regard to what um, Rob was saying, I think the, uh, what I see as a big challenge right now, a really big challenge, is that uh, the society gets split really between the vaccinated and the non-vaccinated. And we must say, there is no doubt about it, is that now from an immunological viewpoint, these are, have become different populations. Nevertheless, as I also emphasized, this is a global event. We can only solve this together. We can only solve this as a population. And so I'm, I'm, I'm always advocating not just for the science, but also for solidarity. It's only as a population that we will be able to solve this. Again, my veterinary background, if you leave the herd, you're no longer protected. You can only be protected by being part of the herd, right? And if we start splitting up the population in and, and and labeling them, you know, vaccinated or, or unvaccinated. Now we must solve this as an entire population. That is how we are going to protect the population and hence protect every single individual in the population. I think that's very important. That is 
uh, a message I uh, just wanted to convey at the end of uh, our session. And thank you, thank you so much uh, for sharing, uh, uh, Paul. But maybe it's not finished. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jurt. I very much appreciate you fitting that message in, and um, how you just said we're diverging into two potentially two different populations immunologically. Uh, that's another point for me to ponder deeply. I want to thank you, gentlemen, for the opportunity to moderate this session, which I very much learned a lot from personally. And I also believe that our listeners will find this of great value. So thank you very much. Thank you.